درود به مردم شریف ایران. من شهریار افشار هستم. میزبان شما در politics365.com یک برنامه آموزشی، بیطرف و غیر انتفاعی. هر هفته ما با دو شخصیت فعال سیاسی، حقوق بشر و کارشناس مصاحبه می‌کنیم که صدای مردم ایران را در این جنبش ملی زنده نگه‌داریم. اگر مایل هستین از این برنامه حمایت کنین، خوشحال میشیم به وبسایت ما مراجعه بفرمایین در politics365.com و هر مقداری که تمایل دارین کمک کنیم. با سپاس و با امیر ایران آزاد بریم دنبال برنامه امروز درود و مردم شریف ایران من شهیار افشار هستم میزبان شما در برنامه پالاتکس 365 امروز یک مهمان خیلی فعال به برنامه دعوت کردیم پروفسور جک گولدستون از جورج میسن یونیورسیتی در واشنگتن دی سی ایشون یه کارشناس امور دولتی و پابلک پالیسی در جورج میسن هستن و چند تا کتاب در زمینه انقلاب نوشتن که به نظر من خیلی جالب بود برای گفتگویی که ما همه ایرانی سر سر دنیا درش فعالیت میکنند واقعا در تحت چه شرایطی یه انقلاب ممکنه به موفقیت برسه و تحت چه شرایطی ممکنه یه انقلاب شکست بخوره خلاصه میخواستم از دکتر دعوت کنم که بیان به برنامه ما پیوستن و بقیه برنامه رو به انگلیسی تایی کردیم و ما تا اونجایی که میتونم سعی میکنم یه جنبنده کوچیکی به فارسی هم آخر برنامه بکنم پروفیسر جک گولستون thank you so much for joining us I really appreciate your time uh, such an interesting as they say we live in interesting times uh, difficult times for a lot of people especially with events going on in Gaza and Israel uh, horrific horrific events that we're witnessing I, as I say in many programs I really didn't want to live to see such horrors happening uh, in the Middle East. Nothing would make Middle Easterners more happy than to see peace uh, in their homelands, uh, especially uh, a lot of folks like in the diaspora and the Iran and American community to enjoy the freedom that we enjoyed in this country. We want to see that joy of freedom, uh, especially government uh, lack of, or really having the government oppressors uh move on and let the people enjoy the freedoms that we like to enjoy in this country so uh with that uh, kind of a concept i really wanted to kind of pick your brain a little bit about uh your book and research about revolutions and rebellion and how you see events unfolding and of course the experience of other revolutions the arab spring all those things that happen in the middle east uh we're witnessing something in Iran as affected by all the different events in the Middle East now. And we're just wondering, how do you see that uh, process unfolding? Um, if you could briefly uh, give us a quick background about yourself uh, and your role at George Mason, and then we'll get into rebellion. All right. Uh, well, thank you for having me, Sharyar. I'm a lifelong academic uh, researcher on Uh, democracy, development, and particularly revolutions. And I've been at this for longer than I want to say, <laughs> but let's say I, I have decades of experience in uh, examining the comparative history of revolutions and understanding social change around the world, in, including a fair bit of attention to Iran. You know, that's fantastic. It, one thing I recall hearing from other people in the diaspora is that they said Iranians have only been ruled either by a monarchy or a dictatorship. They don't have any, other than the, in the 50s, they don't have any uh, 
recollection of what democracy feels like. Uh, so, and especially the, the, the democratic ideology of tolerating different points of view. That is a different thing than Iranians are really familiar with. So I guess the question is, um, um, how do you feel, you know, there's been various uh, rebellions in Iran over the past 44 years, it, all crushed, all, you know, lots of loss of life, uh, horrific events that Iranians had to endure and watch. Um, and now we're in the midst of another movement. And I'm just wondering, what, how do you assess this movement, uh, good or bad? If there were a student in your class, what grade would you give this movement? Uh, and how, what can we learn from it? Well, by this movement, um, I'm not quite sure what you mean, because there were the protests within Iran. There's the um, kind of broad uh, coalition of Iran, Hamas, and Hezbollah against Israel. So by this movement, um, which one do you mean? I mean, the Iranian, the Iranian people and their quest for freedom, their internal... Yeah. Uh, rebellion, if I can, they're calling it rebellion revolution. But right. Well, that, as I've said in a number of forums, I admire the heroism of protesters in Iran, but victory will not be coming anytime soon. Uh, unfortunately, for the movement, the government in Iran is pretty well entrenched. The military remains strongly supportive of the mullah's regime. Uh, the regime is forging ties with Russia and China to create pathways for its exports and gain foreign currency. And the leaders of the government have their fingers in enough of the Iranian economy that they're able to kind of dominate the distribution of resources. Uh, this leaves a lot of people more impoverished than they should be, but also allows the government to dole out favors and distribute goods uh, as it feels needed to keep the loyalty of key segments of the population. Now, you started out this session by saying people want peace. And that is true, but I think you have to add what people really want is a just peace, a peace that they think is fair and protects the values that they are concerned about. And what's disturbing to a lot of people across the Middle East is they feel even during peacetime, they're not living in a just peace, whether it's people in Iran who feel that the regime is excessively oppressive uh, whether of women or of secular interests, whether it's the Palestinians who feel they live under oppression, or the Jews in Israel who feel the world is not sympathetic to the constant threat and the danger that they face. And so with everyone feeling that they're not living under a just regime, there are going to be efforts to try and change the status quo. And those often can be cataclysmic because they disturb everybody's uh, peace, they raise anxieties and lead to exacerbated conflicts. Thank you for that clarification. A just peace. I, I think I will have to remember that because, you know, you could say people were at peace under Saddam Hussein. Uh, there was social order, but they were under an oppressive regime and, and dictator yeah. and, unless you, you spoke up. Um, so given your research and, and, you know, I'm curious, you know, give us a history lesson. What types of rebellion success uh, or are successful? I mean, what, what circumstances in other countries throughout history, what types of revolution make it? Well, all different types of revolutions make it. Historically, we've had 
violent revolutions uh, led by guerrilla forces. We've had nonviolent revolutions led by street protests. Uh, we've had street protests that turn into violent party regimes. It's not so much the type of movement that matters as the condition of the government that they oppose. What we can say with some consistency across history is that revolutions overturn governments that have already worn out their welcome, that are no longer um, inspiring much loyalty, no longer have a broad sense of legitimacy or support, and have started to lose the financial tools to orchestrate um, alliances and strength. So if you have a government that is financially stressed, either excessive debts or inflation or unable to meet its obligations, if that government is seen as no longer defending the honor and strength of the country, but becoming a danger to it, if it starts to lose the loyalty and support of key bureaucratic, religious, or military elites, then popular uprisings can draw elites into rebellion and create the kind of cross-class coalition that will topple a regime. But it takes those multiple elements. Right. And as you explained, and everyone knows, the regime has its hands and fingers or grip on every aspect of Iran, Iran's economy. Uh, it makes sure to take care of its internal elites, yes. uh, uh, however undeserving they are. Um, and so that grip is really hard to break by just street peaceful street protests and uh, Iranian women, you know, burning their hijabs, you know. Yeah. Uh, so uh, from here to there is a long way to go. Uh, it is. And the regime has been rather um, intelligent about trying to avoid uh, making itself unpopular, as it were. It, it's presided over elections that were allowed to produce a variety of outcomes. It continues to be uh, energetic, at the very least, in its propaganda and its effort to sway people's minds. And much of the dirty work that it does for repression, it does under cover of darkness or behind closed doors, all right. of which uh, makes its position stronger. Right. And, you know, this reminds me, someone once told me about the American presidency, the number one priority of a first term president is a second term. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the number one priority of the Islamic regime is maintaining its position. It, I mean, it, it, it dabbles in regional instability for throughout this 44 year history, but ultimately it wants to maintain its control over the economic uh, cash flow that it's created for its uh, elite. Yeah. Um, not necessarily something. I think the real else. time of vulnerability may come um, when the Supreme Leader, uh, Khamenei, passes away. It remains to be seen whether he will have secured a succession as strong as his own. He, he does not have the same um, kind of mystical power uh, that uh, Ayatollah Khomeini had to anoint a successor. And if there's a kind of unquestioned acceptance of his successor, that will strengthen the regime. But if there's some kind of struggle for position among different leaders contending for to either to be his replacement or to change the structure of government, that might create an opening for street protests to ignite bigger changes. Right. And uh, that was, I think, the first hope <laughs> when Khomeini passed away. People said, OK, great. The, the, the mysticism is over and now there's going to be time change and but Khamenei stepped into it without uh, too much of a blip 
And now we're in the same uh, position, uh, 44 years into it. Uh, the regime has had 44 years to entrench itself in every aspect of society, even more. Uh, so now the question is, if he passes away, will his son or some other underling uh, seamlessly step into power or be accepted by the Guardian Council and the and the, the committee? Uh, yeah. Or uh, or will there be a, mo a gap, a power vacuum for someone? The biggest risk is if uh, Khamenei chooses a successor who is not widely supported. If he chooses someone who's seen as, well, that's a personal favorite, but this person really is not experienced enough or distinguished enough or capable of rallying the people enough, uh, then we would see an interesting kind of challenge, much as when Hosni Mubarak seemed to be planning to install his son, Gamal Mubarak, as his successor. The military did not like that and essentially used the popular protests to block that outcome. So unless the successor uh, for Khamenei has the full support of the military, we could see something similar. And really that's the operative uh, support, the military, because no one has popular support in the people. It's more the oppressive uh, organization, the, the oppressive organs of the state uh, that will have to accept the successor, whoever it that person is. Um, but, you know, uh, I guess the, the question is, you know, it, it, at what point, uh, you know, I can just imagine sometimes uh, just, you know, uh, that the power elite meet behind closed doors and they're having some tea and they're wondering how to divvy up the country if something like that happens. This is we're not having a unique conversation. But it's been discussed That's many, right. many times in closed doors. Uh, just curious uh, to say, well, if I don't make my 500 million this weekend, that said, I'm, I'm going to. But the reason I'm, I'm setting that conversation up is if popular demand, you know, pushes the elite into a corner, the question is, these are Iranians, even though we don't like to admit it. Sometimes Iranians in the diaspora think of the regime as invaders from another planet or another country. Well, that's not but, accurate. As you know. I know, I know, I know. Uh, but, but this is how internally uh, they look at it, that these are not Iranians, uh, but because they've They've given up all of their Iranianness by virtue of their betrayal of the, our values and our and our oppression of our people. You realize they would say the same thing about the diaspora. Oh, I know, I know. This is this is the dilemma. <laughs> this is our quagmire that we're in. We both think of ourselves as invaders and traitors to the cause, uh, the diaspora and the and the. But so my question is, uh, hypothetical question, and this has been discussed in the diaspora. Uh, would a, a transition give a back door to these people to leave. We've talked about Venezuela and escape, take all their money and go. Would, it, would that be a situation that could practically exist? I think what we would see is most of the elite would remain in Iran with their money, but switch their allegiance to a new figurehead who they felt would satisfy the people. Right. You right. might have some individuals leave if they felt they personally had become too unpopular or their situation was too risky. But I think most of the elite have kind of straddled the line between posing as Iranian nationalists and working closely with an oppressive regime. Right. So if they get tarred with one, they'll kind of shift to the, I'm an Iranian nationalist, I help protect the country, wave that flag and try to survive. Right. And when we saw some indication of that propensity 
with Khatami and Rafsanjani who said, hey, we're we're moderates. We're trying to, you know, we we are with the people. And that didn't that was very short-lived. Right. Very, a lot of people were very excited about Khatami, not excited, but tolerant um, of uh, some form of change. Dialogue of civilizations, it was called, right? It, no, he was smiling. That. Remember that? I mean, that was that just seems like a distant memory now. He was at the UN, he was smiling, he was shaking hands. He wasn't like as, as divisive Ahmadinejad and denying of the Holocaust. He was, he was, t- people could tolerate him. Yes. Uh, and, and, but the regime quickly suppressed any kind of change he wanted to do. And he was pushed away and, and, and Rafsanjani, same thing. Um, so it's really difficult to find a situation where the, the elite would uh, be able to give that opening. And the reason is the people may not tolerate the, even if they change uh, their colors, as uh, politicians would do, uh, the diaspora and the people of Iran are so uh, so had it with the regime that they're, they may not give a back door to these people to just change colors and stay in Iran. We'll have to see. <laughs> I, don't, I don't. It's so hard to predict whether change will come and when. Right. And it's even more difficult to say exactly who will be left standing when it occurs. Right. No, it's a terrible question. I, I don't mean to put you uh, on the spot. Uh, but, you know, in a couple of minutes, in the minute we have left, uh, with Hamas and Hezbollah and all the things that are going on in Gaza and Israel, uh, I mean, how do you see uh, Iran pulling the strings with Hamas and Hezbollah? Uh, it, it seems like to me, it seems like their number one priority, like I said, is the second term, is to stay in power. Right. They don't really want to poke the bear and get into an open conflict with the U.S. and Israel. They, they don't want to poke the bear, but the worst nightmare of Iran's leadership would be for Israel, the United States, and Saudi Arabia to all come together in an event to contain, cut off, or undermine Iran's ability to function. Uh, they see all three countries as enemies. And if the three of them cooperate against Iran, uh, they know they are are in trouble. So Iran has done everything to try and put that off. One is to build ties with Russia and China as backup. But the other strategy, which has been quite effective, is to find proxies around the Middle East that can keep their opponents off balance. So they've backed the Houthi in Yemen. They've supported Hezbollah in Lebanon. They've supported Hamas in Palestine. Uh, All of this has managed to divide Israel uh, put distance between Israel and the U.S. And now with the latest move by Hamas, that seems to really undermine what was a coming rapprochement between Israel and Saudi Arabia. So Iran has succeeded, I think, uh, in the short term in making the potential coalition of its worst enemies less likely. Isn't that amazing uh, that you could look at, not you, but uh, that we could look at the events unfolding in the past few weeks and uh, somehow the regime uh, count, would count it as a success because it's created division, which is always what it wanted to divide and, and keep its uh, opponents uh, not united against, uh, unfocused on Iran. Uh, Professor Jack Goldstone, uh, thank you so much. This has been so illuminating. I feel like I was in your class for a few minutes. Uh, I don't know what grade I got, but- You're uh, always welcome. <laughs> thank you so much. I hope you can come back and join us soon. There's so much to talk about about Iran and the Middle East and rebellion. Uh, unfortunately, there's so much to talk about. Uh, and, and we really hope that uh, our, our, our guests, our, our uh, audience really learn something 
from your talk. Thank you so much. My pleasure.